I have a question for us as we begin. If you had to write down what you felt your greatest needs are right now, I wonder what you would write. So just think about that a second. If I was challenged to honestly write down my greatest need right now, what would I put down? I think if we asked the world, the rest of the, or the people in our culture generally, it would be some, something in the area of career advancement or security of their finances or, or perhaps their health or the health of someone they cared about. And, and maybe that is for us too, or, or as Christians, maybe we feel like our greatest need is to have a deeper spiritual experience. Our, our greatest need is to know more about the Bible, is to be more involved in the church, to serve greater. And may I suggest to you um, that our greatest need, in fact, and this is what we'll be exploring today, our greatest need is to understand the greatness and the wonder of God's love to you. And if you don't get anything else today, I, I hope you get this. Your greatest need and my greatest need as Christians, now that we have tasted and seen that the Lord is good and received Christ and placed our trust upon him and be, being born again into his family, our greatest need is this, to understand the wonder of God's love to each one of us. We're going to be exploring that in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. And as we do, will you join me in prayer? Father, truly how great is your love that you have lavished upon us. Thank you. Thank you that we can have this hope then in you. The hope in life and in death is you because of what you are and what you've done for us. God, I pray that you would use today's sermon to clarify our thoughts. There's so much in this world, so many ideas, so many thoughts. We need to hear yours. And no one needs to hear mine, God. So I pray that you would allow me the grace to forget something that's simply my opinion, but instead to lift you up, to lift you up in the glory of your word and the wonder of your love. Would you let that be true, Lord? And then would you apply it as you see fit in each of our individual hearts? Thank you, Lord. Amen. <clears throat> All right. As we go through the book of 1 John, we come to this passage, which is my favorite passage in the whole book, and is really, I think, the heart of this. So there's two chapters before, there's two and a half chapters after this. But to me, this is the, the, the jewel at the center this is the, the root that gives life to all the rest, to change the analogy a little bit. In 1 John 3, 1 through 3, <clears throat> Behold, what kind of love the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, now we are the children of God, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we will be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone that has this hope in him purifies himself as he is pure. All right, let's break down this, especially this first verse here a little bit. Most of your translations will begin the right way. Behold. But maybe, you know, we're not grasping enough what that word is, is saying. It's not just the normal word for look at. But instead, he's using a, a, a word 
that would mean to give your attention to, to look at, to gaze upon it, and, and pay attention and thought to. So, for example, in Luke 9.38, there's a father who cries out to Jesus for his, for his son. He says, behold, my son. Now, he wasn't saying, hey, look at this guy, you know. Put your glance here. No, he was saying, look, this is someone I want you to give your attention to. And that's what God is saying to us right now. I want you and I to give your attention to, to behold, to gaze at what? At this love? This what kind of love? And originally that phrase meant from what country? I love what John Stott says. The Father's love is so unearthly, so foreign to this world that John wonders what country it may have come from. Do you see the idea of, of wonder and amazement carrying right through this? And then even further, that the Father has lavished upon us. Sometimes we don't, we don't have the same tenses of verbs in our language, so we need reminders like the New American Commentary. The perfect tense verb, has lavished, further accentuates the permanent results of this divine love. It is a freely given, it is freely given and cannot be withdrawn. Further, God has not just shown his love to humans, but he has given it to them in such a way that it becomes a permanent part of them. You know, my wife, we've been married a few years now. She's given me a lot of presents over the years, and uh, most of them I don't have anymore, right? Because they wore out or, or, or whatever. But the gift of herself, that is a permanent part of me. has changed me profoundly. And, and that's the idea here, that he has given us this permanent, life-changing possession. That's what he's wondering about. Behold, look at, think about what kind of love that the Father has given you and I, that he's lavished upon us, that we should be called the children of God. I want to talk about four things that make this love so wondrous, and then we'll talk about how we respond to it. All right, what is so wondrous about this love? Uh, John is here, he's towards the end of his life. Most scholars would date this maybe in the 80s or 90s, so John's old. And, and he's coming to the end of his life. He spent all those years with Jesus. He spent all those years in the church, uh, building the church. And yet this one thing he comes back to again and again, this love of God that has changed us. What is it about this? Well, I think there are four things here at least. First, the source of this love. It is from God the Father. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us. We who have grown up in church, we may, uh, you know, we may hear that, and it seems commonplace to us to call God the Father. But we need reminding that when Jesus came upon the scene of that world, when Jesus came upon the scene, there was not this idea that you could call God the Father. In fact, if you read in the Old Testament, and this, again, it's three-fourths of the Bible, so three times the size of the New Testament, you will not find an individual one time calling God Father. You'll find a handful of times where he's called the Father of the nation, Israel. But now one time will a person call God Father or encourage others to, to do also. And yet when Jesus comes along and his disciples ask him, teach us to pray, the first thing he says is, this is how you pray, our Father who art in heaven. What a beautiful thought. Jesus had this great, high, exalted view of God and yet this is also our Father. 
I don't think we can ever get our minds wrapped around the greatness of God. But the more that we do, the more we should wonder that this God calls us his children. You look out into the night sky, night sky I'm told if you have pretty good darkness out, you can see maybe two or 3,000 stars. But of course, we know in our age, we, we may miss because of the light pollution, seeing all the visible stars that people back then could, but we have another advantage. We can see through telescopes what God has made in a way that they couldn't. You know what they find, scientists who study these things? They find that all the things we used to think were stars, almost all of them are actually galaxies full of billions of stars. In fact, they have calculated that if you could figure out how many grains of sand were in all the beaches of the world, so stop, stop there in your mind. You figure out how many grains are in a gallon or a square foot. You, you take the latest geological surveys. You extrapolate that. And that's what they did. And then you figure out how many stars are in the visible universe. We're just talking about what we can see with our telescopes. And it's approximately 10,000 times the amount of grain of sand on the entire Earth. This is the God who calls us, who calls us his children. Now, second thing is a result of this love, that we should be called the children of God, that we should be called the children of God. You know, it would be enough if he said, behold what kind of love the Father, the righteous Father has showed upon us, that because of Jesus, we are saved from his wrath. That's not enough for God. He saves us from his wrath. We are given forgiveness of our sins for the greater purpose that we can be restored in a relationship with him. And the, the, the name that he chose to give to this relationship is father and child, that we should be called the children of God. And I, again, this is one of those things where you, the more you think about it, the more wondrous it is. There's a passage in the Gospel of John I wrote down in your, in your notes. In John 17, Jesus is giving what's called the great priestly prayer of Jesus because he's praying for us. He's praying for his followers, but then in this last part, he's praying for us. He says, I have, made you, I have made you, Father, known to them and will continue to make them known in order, now listen to this, that the love you have for me may be in them and I myself may be in them. Now, later in the same chapter, he's going to talk about the love that the Father had for the Son and vice versa before the world began. The very love of the Trinity that is more foundational than creation. That was here before God opened up his mouth and spoke all things into existence. That love, he says, that same love I have given to them. You see, God's not withholding some of this love. It's like he's got this big pile of love for Jesus. And he's got, well, he's got this little pile for you and I, you know, because we're not Jesus. That's not the way he does things. The same love that he has for Jesus is the same love that he brings us to his children. That is an incredible thought. I heard a story about a group of soldiers in World War II. One of their buddies had died and they went to the nearest place that they could. It was a Roman Catholic church with the cemetery and asked permission to bury him there. And the priest said, is he a Catholic? And he said, no. He says, I'm sorry, you, you can't bury him inside the, the Catholic cemetery. And they were a little disheartened. 
But they did the next best thing they could. They went and buried him right outside the fence. The next day they were given, they, they knew they had to leave, go to a different front or a different area. So they came to pay their last respects at the grave to their fallen friend. But they couldn't find the grave. They were looking all, all outside the fence and they couldn't find it. Finally, they asked the priest about it. He says, well, says, uh, I stood up the first half of the night feeling bad about the answer I gave to you. And I spent the second half of the night moving the fence. That's what God's done. He has expanded the circle of Trinitarian love to include you and me. That is a wondrous love. Third thing, the price of this love. What God and Jesus had to do in order to make us his children. In both chapter 1 and the first part of chapter 2, chapter 4, he talks about this, First John. He talks about that he is the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice for our sins. First Peter talks about a passage rightly read. It wasn't silver or gold or any of these perishable things that God gave to redeem you and I. I mean, there's not much more valuable in our world, or especially in the ancient world, than silver or gold, right? That was his, this is now. Was well, nothing worthless like that, you know, compared to this. The precious blood of Jesus Christ, the Lamb. You know, sometimes we have the idea that we can measure love by the intensity of an emotional feeling. How much do you feel? You know, when we talk about how much we love someone, it's, well, how deeply do you feel? The New Testament doesn't ask that. It's not how much you feel, but how much would you give? That's how you can measure this. That's how you can really measure love. I heard a woman <clears throat> and a man. The man was uh, diagnosed with a very rare, mysterious disease, and the, the doctor came to talk to his wife before he talked to the man after the diagnosis, after he figured out what was going on. He said, all right, your husband's immune system is going to be incredibly compromised. So I think you will make it, but you will have to adjust everything. You're going to have to keep your house incredibly spotless. You're going to have to prepare his meals. He's, he's not going to have uh, the, the, the strength to do much for himself. You're going to have to do everything that you can that he, for all the things that he normally could do, you're going to have to do. You're going to have to prepare him good, wholesome, fresh meals every time and you're going to have to take care of his every need. And the uh, doctor said, do you understand? Yes. And he said, do you, do you want me to tell your husband or, or do you want to? I will. So she goes into her husband and she has tears in her eyes. She says, honey, the doctor says you're going to die. <laughs> that should obviously jump. But did she love her husband? No. Despite her feelings... She wasn't willing to, to give that degree. The price that God paid for your being called his child is beyond compare. That's how deeply he loves you. This is not a, an emotional feeling that's going to come and go depending on our performance, how much we've sinned this week, how much good we've done. This is a settled determination before time began to include you in this trinal, circle of Trinitarian love at the cost of his own son. And then lastly, the result of this, that we become like him. And you see that, right? And that is what we are, children of God. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. No, but then he, he clarifies this a little bit. All right. Beloved, now we are the children of God, and what we will be has not yet appeared. So think on that for just a second and We'll come back. But we know that when he appears, we will be like him, 
for we shall see him as he is. And everyone that has this hope in him purifies himself as he is pure. And I'm reminded here of Romans 8. You know that great verse. In all things, God works for the good of those who love him, right? Romans 8, 28. But then remember, there are no, when Paul was writing, he didn't put little uh, divisions of chapter and verse. He just kept right on going. And the right next phrase right after that, in order that we might be conformed to the image of his son. That's in A29. Conformed to the image of his son. See, at the very heart of what God is doing in your life and my life is this. He has taken us as his children, embracing us in this Trinitarian love, and not just as objects of pity, but in a transformative kind of way that makes us like Jesus. Now, I don't think we're going to have all the attributes of Jesus as the eternal uh, member of the Trinity in terms of, of his eternity and his essence. But the idea is that the risen Jesus is what we will be like in our morality, in our wisdom, in our, in our power. That is what we're going to be. Now, he, and he mentions here, the world's not going to get this. The problem is we may not get it either, right? The world's not going to get it for two reasons. They're not going to understand that we're the children of God. Well, why? Well, first, they didn't recognize Jesus as the Son of God, so they're not going to recognize us if we're in Jesus. But secondly, because what we will be has not yet appeared. Not yet appeared. So the dominant thought all throughout this whole chapter is that we are being born into something. But I think also he would say, that that birth has not yet happened yet. In many ways, this new being within us has been conceived, but it's not yet been delivered. It's still in utero. And, uh, and, and that's the question, right? Is We know it's here because it's growing. We should feel it. But not yet do we see what it will be. So you ever had a, a friend who was a young woman, you know, and and you, you notice she's starting to get a little round around the abdomen, and you're wondering, hmm, you know, is she pregnant or not? But you, you don't know her well enough, so you can just go up and say, yeah, so um, are you pregnant or just getting fat, you know? Uh, but for a while there, you're unsure, right? Because the evidence could go either way. But it's only as that child grows and is delivered, then you see in an unmistakable way a new life is being brought into existence. Now, there's a way that analogy breaks down. That's us, by the way. That's what we're trying to get at, that we are, in a sense, being born. Hopefully, we have a baby bump, uh, this new creation within us, right? But it's not yet. But, but there's one way this analogy breaks down. We've seen plenty of pregnant women, and we've seen plenty of babies. But imagine if we hadn't. That's what he means here. What we will be has not yet appeared. We don't, we don't know what that looks like. We have hints, I mean, small sliver of hints in the resurrection stories of Jesus. But to be honest, you could, you could fill those up in like, you know, four paragraphs. We don't know much. Imagine if, change the analogy a little bit, slightly. Imagine that you came across a chrysalis, a cocoon, but you had never seen a butterfly. Would you have any idea what that, caterpillar was being transformed into if you had never experienced or seen that. What you and I are being transformed into in this process of God, this, this love process, 
we literally cannot understand because we don't have any experience of it and we probably don't have any conception of it. If you can explain flying to a, a caterpillar or you can spell, explain colors to one of those fish you know, in the caves that can't see a thing, they're blind, they're, they're not going to get it. In the same way, I think the scripture doesn't explain it because we're probably going to misunderstand more than we understand. In fact, we're told three things about our resurrection life. One, we will have a body. Two, it will be a different kind of body than we have now. First Corinthians 15 says it's kind of like, you know, you plant an acorn, but there's an oak that grows out of that. You don't, you don't plant an, uh, an oak to grow an oak. You plant an acorn, and, and God changes it. So there's a continuity with the, with the physical body that's put down in death, but there's a radical discontinuity as well. And then third, here, we will be like him. We will be like him. This is God's love. So what's so wondrous about this love? The source, who it's from. The result, that we should be called the children of God, the price that he had to pay. And then finally, the result, that we become like him. Now let's turn and say, God, what should we do because of this love? Now, let's just not let me do all the talking here. Let's, let's do our own talking to the Holy Spirit in our mind. Do you believe this? Do you believe that God has loved you this much? Then let's say to God, show me what this means. Let me give us two things that I think flow out of this, but you're going to have to fill them in with more specifics in your own life. First, what do we do? We ask God to help us get it. <laughs> and what I mean by getting it is we, we, ask, we need to ask God to help us understand this love because we don't. And this really is going back to this biggest need that we have. Our greatest need is to understand this love of God because that's what changes us. There's a great passage in Ephesians 3. If you know the book of Ephesians, it's got three chapters. first three are all about God's plan and what he's done for us and how that fits in with God's universal plan. And then the last three chapters, four, five, and six, are about what we should do in response. Right here at the hinge, before he goes into any of that, he says, after all these three chapters of talking about God's wondrous plan, he says, i got to stop and i got to pray for you guys. And how does he pray? I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. So this inner person, I want God to strengthen. Notice, we usually pray for the outer person and the needs of the outer person, right? We're talking health. We're talking problem solving. We're talking about problems that we have in our career, our finances, our home, our relationships. Paul's going to the heart. He says, I'm praying that God strengthens you in your inner man. And I, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now, he's writing to Christians here. We've already got Christ in our heart in one sense, but there's a deeper dwelling. And how's that come about? It's not through these spiritual experiences. It's not through being baptized in the Holy Spirit or, or having some ecstatic experience or, or using some gift or whatever. Here's what he says. Here's his prayer for us. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, you've already, you're in God's love, I want you to have power together with all God's holy people to get, to grasp how wide 
and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled to all the measure of the fullness of Christ. If you get this, he says, you'll be filled. What a paradox. I want you to know the unknowable love of Christ. How's that work? Well, I've used this analogy before, but I know a couple things about the Pacific Ocean. Uh, I've, I've swam in it a few times, snorkeled in it, I've seen some fish down there. I've seen, I've seen lots of maps of the Pacific Ocean. But you know, all humanity together has explored less than, I think, 10% of that ocean and hardly any of the deepest part of it. We could spend the rest of our life learning more and more, exploring, studying, learning facts about the Pacific Ocean. It's a knowledge, though, that goes beyond what we can grasp in our one lifetime. I think that's the idea. There will never come a time, there will never come a time where you know enough about the love of Jesus Christ for you. There will never become a time where you shouldn't know, learn to more, know more about it. There will never be a time where you're, you're at the level where it's okay and, and you, you've got this taken care of. There may be fields of knowledge that in your life you come to that level, but not this one. Karl Barth was undoubtedly the most famous and influential theologian of the 20th century. You don't have to agree with his theology to agree with that fact. I mean, he, he changed theology in Europe and in America. German guy. He, uh, he wrote a lot of books. He has one called Church Dogmatics. Uh, I just saw an edition on eBay, it ran to 31 volumes. And uh, his writing style is not exactly light prose either. All right, so he wrote tons and tons of stuff. He, he was a, a very incredibly deep thinker. And again, you don't have to agree with him on every point of his theology, but to understand the grasp of what he had studied and written about. And near the end of his life, a reporter came and asked him this question. They said, uh, Dr. Barth, Dr. Bart." What's the most profound thought you've ever had? And he answered, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Quoted that old children's ditty. That's it. You'll never get to the place. I don't care if you're Karl Barth or someone beyond him, where you can grasp all the wonder of this. So we ask God. We ask God to help us get it, right? because we live in a world of lesser loves, and we, we live in a world where karma and striving seem to be the norm, and, and grace we, we don't really understand as much. We live in an age of distraction. They call it the information age. It's more the distraction age, right? We need to ask God, show me. The people I care about, let's pray for them, that God opens their eyes to his love. All right, and then last. Ask God to purify you in this love. Did you see how he ended that? He says, a person who has this hope in them purifies himself as he is pure. Now remember, hope in the New Testament is used differently than we use it. We use it about something we want to happen but may or may not happen. That's not how the Bible uses the word hope or the concept of hope. Rather, it's something that will happen, but it's in the future. It's, but it's such a good thing that it changes our now. Imagine a well, many of us don't have to imagine we've experienced this ourselves or with our spouse, uh, a woman who becomes pregnant with her first child. All right, the doctor gives her a delivery date. And that, that woman goes and she lives the rest of those eight months or over long until the delivery date, just as she did before, right? 
No. She changes what she does because of that future hope. She changes what she eats. She probably takes what medicines. She changes how often she goes to the doctor. She and her husband probably change their home and start creating a nursery for this child, and they begin changing their finances. Maybe she changes her job in order to have more time. She lives a life different because of the future hope, not because of something in the past, but what's ahead in the future. And that's the idea. God does not want us to live as those who try to fix ourselves morally so that we can earn God's love, so we can be good people, so we can get along better in life, so we can have this good life now. He wants us to look so fixedly on that due date and have our hearts so drawn to the wonder of that that we change out of our heart. Change because we desire to. So so anyone who has this hope in them purifies himself as he is pure. And you can tell how much hope you have in the second coming of Christ and all that that means for us by how much we let it change us. What do we need to purify ourselves from? Well, I would suggest two broad categories here. And uh, one is sin, obviously. In the next section of John's letter, he's going to delve right into that, and that's where we're going to go next week. So I'm not going to deal with it here right now, except to just remind us of of this fact. That the sin is not this fun rule-breaking that God wants to deprive us from. It's a cancer that he wants to deliver us from. And yet we have to be cooperating within that process. As he says, purifying ourselves. I, I really, what I think he means in the context of the New Testament is asking God, to purify, making ourselves part of that process willingly. So sin, maybe there's a particular sin in your own life or my life, and we've tried to get rid of it. We've tried to change our behavior. We've added accountability partners. We've added rules about what we're going to do, what we're not going to do, and yet it's still there. Aquinas, almost a 1,000 years ago, reminded us that the only thing that can really cure a passion for a lesser thing is a love for a greater thing. And maybe what God is encouraging us to say is, I don't want you to view that thing in terms of success or failure. I want you to view that as something you desire to leave behind because of the hope that's before you. All right, so first thing is sin. These are just broad categories. And then second is fear. Fear. Now, why do I say that? It's not here in the text. No, not right here. It's a little bit ahead, though. Where'd I go? I was already here. First John 4, 8. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. By the way, that word casts out is a word that would be used of an exorcism. Perfect love exercises fear. And, and that's the idea. There are fears that we have within us that if we really got God's love would seem so ridiculous, wouldn't they? Fear what people think about us. You ever hear someone say this? Well, I don't care what people think about me. When I hear that now anymore, I think, you liar. Uh, Why are you telling me this? If not to 
create a certain image in my mind about you, that you're a person who doesn't care what people think about you, right? None of us are like that. We, we all care about what people think of us. But when we get this, when we understand this, we care less. We have fear of the future. Fear about if our career goes sour, we run out of money. We have fear about our health and the health of people we love. We have fear about our status. We have fear about relationships. We have so many fears. We call them anxieties sometimes, and they do create that anxiety within us. But their sources of fear, their sources of fear that things will not be the way we desperately want them to be. And I can't tell you that things are going to turn out the way you want. I'm not going to get up here and say, oh, just ask God in prayer and he'll give you and do the right things and, and he'll make everything turn out sunshine and roses. Not true. What I can tell you is this, that the scope and the purpose of God's love are so much deeper for you that in light of eternity, these things will mean less than nothing. That's a big statement. But this is what we are told that God's love for us is of the transformative kind. It's not the kind that makes God a, a cosmic genie, a vending machine in the sky. It's a kind that enables us to be transformed into his children, and that is our deepest need. That is our deepest need, always. And that is the need that God will meet. We have fear for our security sometimes. We have fear for significance we have fear that we're not going to measure up or that we don't measure up or that people don't think we measure up, right? We have fear we're not adequate. Adults have this fear. You know, when you're kids, you think adults have it all together. When you're an adult, you realize you don't. We're just putting on an act. We know if you scratch, between, scratch underneath the surface, we are deeply flawed and deeply inadequate. And we're afraid that people will know that. We're afraid that we don't matter. You know, one of the coolest things that I ever read in a book is, is an odd book. I'm not going to recommend it. But it was a, it was a book about grace. Um, and in this book that's a parable, there comes a place where this, this man understands God's grace so deeply in a new way. He exclaims to this woman with him, do you have any relief or any idea what a relief it is not to have to matter? Wow. And really, though, I mean, if we get this love, why would we have to matter to other people or to the world as a whole? We have the eternal love of God. We have him transforming us into beings like Jesus Christ himself, expanding the circle of Trinitarian love. What could we matter in this life that wouldn't matter compared to that? We can leave these things behind. But again, part of this is going to be recognizing this and bringing these to God and saying, God, will you, will you refine me? I want to be refined in this way, but I need you. I'm going to end with uh, this thought about refining. You know, this is, um, actually, you probably do if you're getting ahead of me here, but this is actually a chunk of gold. So if you go out into the wild and you find gold, of course, it's not going to look like this. It's going to look something like this. Or if you break it up, it might look something like this. Now, here's the thing, first of all. You don't refine things that aren't worth anything. 
Refining means that there's something valuable, but there's also some things that aren't good, that aren't valuable, that are mixed in, and you have to get those out. You have to purify it. It's the same idea, same word. You have to purify it, refine it, uh, release the contaminants from it. And you don't do things, you don't do that to things that aren't valuable. God does it to you and I, or he partners with us in that because we are valuable. You don't, you don't purify mud, okay? This is 99.99% pure mud, right? You don't purify poop, all right? You just don't. You've never heard of that. You purify things that are valuable. That's where we're going here. But how do you get from this to this? You do that as the purification takes away all the parts that shouldn't be there. And then you have this pure gold nuggets that you can make into anything beautiful that you want to make. And that's what God's doing. You and I in this new creation, in this new life that we have with God, we're not going to be celestial beings floating on a harp looking down on heaven in this eternal worship service. We are going to be our perfected selves, what we were meant to be. And you and I are going to be different than each other, just like a ring made from gold is going to be different than a necklace or, or something else beautiful. But this is what has to happen. There's a book title, If God Loves Me, Why Can't I Get My Locker Open? <laughs> Wrong question. Because the point is not that God's love fixes our problems. The point is that God's love changes us. It makes us like Jesus so we can be fully a member of this circle of Trinitarian love. There's a quote in your uh, bulletin by a missionary named Amy Carmichael, a hero to many people, who worked in India tirelessly for the abandoned orphans. And she says, one day we took the children to see a goldsmith refine gold after the ancient manner of the East. He was sitting beside his little charcoal fire. And then she quotes a verse from, I think, Jeremiah. He shall sit as a refiner. The gold or silversmith never leaves his crucible once it's on the fire. And in the red glow lay a common curved roof tile, Another tile covered, covered it like a lid. This was the crucible. In it was the medicine made of salt, tamarind, fruit, and burnt brick dust. And embedded in that was the gold. And the medicine does its appointed work on the gold. Then the fire eats it. And the goldsmith lifts the gold out with a pair of tongs, lets it cool, rubs it between his fingers, and if not satisfied, puts it back again as fresh medicine. This time he blows the fire hotter than it was before, and each time he puts the gold into the crucible, the heat of the fire is increased. Quote, it could not bear it so hot at first, but it can bear it now. What would have destroyed it then helps it now. How do you know when the gold is purified, we asked him. And he answered, when I could see my face in the liquid gold in the crucible, then it is pure. This is God's desire and heart and love for you and I.